We are in a study in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is in the middle of your Old Testament, but the story actually happens at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, there are three books in the Old Testament that kind of tie closely together. Esther, which talks a little bit about the political climate of the day. Ezra, who goes back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah, who goes back to rebuild the walls. When you get to the book of Nehemiah, what's happened is the children of Israel are in exile. They're in Babylon, Persia area. The, play, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. So uh, Solomon's temple is, was, was ruined. Um, and a guy by the name of Ezra decides to go back and try to rebuild the temple. And he does. Uh, it's not anything compared to the temple that Solomon built. And it really pales in comparison even to the temple that's going to be the temple in Christ's day. Um, uh, and, and so it, it, it's this kind of small thing. In fact, people almost kind of make fun of it because it was kind of so silly compared to what Solomon had built. And so, um, but Ezra got the temple built. And then Ezra went to start to rebuild the walls. And uh, what happened is a couple of people didn't like that, so they went to the king, Artaxerxes, and said, hey, we need you to issue a decree and say Ezra can't build the walls anymore. So he had done that. And the king had issued the decree and said no more walls are to be built there. Along comes Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's an incredibly entrusted position, uh, a position of great um, importance and significance because um, that was a person who basically was your closest security force right there. Uh, he made sure that whatever you drank, whatever the king drank, um, you had tasted and you would die first uh, before the king. And so it was somebody the king trusted a lot. Uh, in some cases, um, really became a confidant um, of them. But Nehemiah is a Jewish guy, and he's in a pagan world. And so... That's Nehemiah's job. One day he was doing his job, and one of his brothers, and we think actually maybe even a physical brother, came and said, and, and was visiting with him, and he said, how's Jerusalem doing? And he goes, it ain't good. He said, uh, the temple's built, but the walls are still broken down. The gates are burned with fire. The people are in despair. Everybody's kind of throwing in the towel, and it's just sad. It's really, really sad. And so we talked about in chapter 1, Nehemiah then immediately goes to God in prayer, and he prays and asks God. He fasts. He um, becomes really, it, it kind of consumes his life. And he's so burdened for Jerusalem and wants to get this thing fixed. And so he starts pleading with God and asking God to work here. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. We talked about his prayer last week and how uh, he was so passionate about getting this thing fixed. So we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 2, and here's the first verse. Here's what it says. It says, And it came to pass in the month Nisan, or Nisan. Let's just stop there. I'm going to stop a lot, so just get used to it. Um, if you remember, his brother came to him in the month of Chislov, which is December, November, December in our calendar. Nisan's like April. There's four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the reason I say that is because we don't add the time element often in Bible stories. And we just kind of gloss over it. We assume chapter 1, his brother comes, tells him it's in it. He prays for a couple of days, and then he goes into the king. No, no, for four months. And then you're going to see why that's important in a minute. For four months, this guy's praying, fasting, 
pouring his heart out to God, and nothing has happened. Now, it's interesting, the month Nisan that they're talking about there, um, in the Persian calendar, it's different. In the Persian calendar, this is the first month. This is actually their new year. Um, it would be our January. And in the Persian calendar, what would happen is, just like in our new year, we have a big celebration, a big feast. Often the Persians, the Babylonians, they do the same thing. It was not uncommon during that feast for the king to grant something very special. Um, and we don't know if the situation in chapter 2 takes place there or if it's something in private. But it, it, it follows well with the story either way. But what happens is, it's the month Nisan, and notice what it says, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now notice what he says. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. For four months, Nehemiah did his job and he allowed his private life to not affect his public life. For four months, he had kept this thing hidden from the king. And for four months, he had responded in a way that the king had no idea what was going on privately in his world. He had covered it up, was able to go do his job, come back, get burdened about it again. And, and notice what it says. I've been sad in his presence before. There the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? Time out. This is a big deal. See, we go up to somebody and go, hey, you know, I mean, we don't say it this way, but it's like, hey, you're not looking so good. Um, are you okay? Um, but the king looks at him and goes, hey, look, um, why are you sad? Now, this is a big problem, and here's why it's a big problem. Because in this world, people tried to kill the king. And so to the king, protocol, consistency was very, very important. So if the guy you're entrusting your life to is all of a sudden nervous and acting funny, if you have any bit of paranoia at all, what are you going? He's up to something. This was the kind of thing that got you fired or in some cases killed. But it's interesting because Artaxerxes has such a close relationship with Nehemiah that notice what he says. This, why is your face sad since you're not sick? So he knew that he wasn't sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. He said, there's something going on in your life right now, and I can sense it. Now, this is a pagan king. It's not a godly guy. This is a pagan king. And he goes, there's something going on in your heart. And notice what Nehemiah says. So I became dreadfully afraid. Yeah. Because you're about ready, you could lose your life over being sad in the presence of the king because now you've got a king who's nervous. A king who thinks, I'm, you know, because here was a protocol. A, a servant would come up, they would hand them wine to the king, they would present the wine before the king, they'd pour it probably in the goblet or the glass, not glass, but the goblet, and then they would hand it to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah would take a sip at it, and everybody would stare at him for a few minutes. Okay, you didn't die. All right, the king can have it now. And so all of a sudden, they pour the cup, and Nehemiah starts it, and the king's going, something ain't right here. He don't look right. There's something going on. Nehemiah, why are you sad? And Nehemiah's going, what I say next is very, very important. 
So what does he do? What does he do? Notice what he says. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Let me tell you something. This is not only bold, but this is brilliant. What place is he talking about? Jerusalem. So here's a question. Why doesn't he say Jerusalem? Why didn't he say, because Jerusalem is in trouble? Here's why. Because you see, Jerusalem and the Persian Babylonian world had revolted against the Persian Babylonian world. So think about this for a second now. If you are, have the king who's nervous now, and you look at him and go, hey, I'm concerned about Jerusalem, you know that city that revolted against you guys? No. What does Nehemiah do? He says, the city of my father's what? Tombs. You go, well, that's kind of odd. Why? Here's why. In the Babylonian, Persian, Egyptian world, the tomb of your father's was everything. You wanted to be known after you were gone. That's why the Egyptians built the pyramids. That's why all of the, 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 the um, pompous stuff that surrounds death That's why the sarcophaguses were made. So the afterlife and and death and your legacy was so important. And so Nehemiah, wisely, with the wisdom of God, looks at this king and goes, you know what? My father's tombs, the place where they are, it's desolate. It's all in disarray. Nobody can be comfortable there. And that resonates with the heart of a of a pagan king. And notice what he goes next, okay? Because this is what you can see. This is a, I love this story. Going on to the next passage. Then the king said to me, what do you want? Now, a minute ago, you were worried for your life. Now the king says, what do you want, Nehemiah? And what does Nehemiah do? He prayed. You think this is a long prayer? This is one of those quickie prayers. This is one of those, God, don't let me screw this up. I got, I got, I got a few seconds. Help me to get it right. People go, well, see, you know, it's just quick prayer. No, no, you got to remember this. Don't, don't miss the story. He can pray a quick prayer because he's prayed for four months. He can pray a quick prayer because he's used to talking to God with long prayers. He can pray a quick prayer because he's got this whole history of four months being burdened for this thing before God, trying his heart out before God. So it's really easy for him to naturally go into a quick prayer before he opens his mouth. And notice what he says. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah. That's the big area. Doesn't mention Jerusalem. To the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. He said, I want a leave of absence. Now, (laughs) you're the king's cupbearer. His life is dependent upon you. And you look at him and go, I want to take off for a while. And notice what happens next. What does the king say? 
<clears throat> then the king said to me, the queen sitting also beside him. That's amazing in and of itself. There are some people who believe that this is Esther. I don't. Um, but at the very least, I believe it's one of Esther's relatives. It's interesting that it's mentioned in here that it's just thrown aside that way because there are only a couple situations where the king and the queen would have been together and, and, and the queen may not be actually the queen. It may be part of his harem and, and, and we're not sure, but he throws it in there because whoever this person is probably has some influence over the king. And I think they have some relationship to Esther if it's not Esther itself and not herself. Notice what he says. How long will your journey be and when will you return? So he says, okay, you want to leave absence? How long? And by the way, Anybody know how long he's going to be gone? Twelve years. Now, I don't think he went in and said, hey, I want, I want to leave Absa for twelve years. I think what happened is he, leave, he sets a time, he goes, he rebuilds the walls, he comes back, makes a deal with the king. The king realizes Jerusalem's going to be important because they're having a little battle with Egypt. And so he sends him back, and he kind of oversees Jerusalem actually for the king. Um, but it ends up being twelve years, it's all said and done. Notice what he said. When, so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So Nehemiah was able to answer the king. Okay, this is how long I'm going to be gone, and this is when I'll be back. End of story, right? Nope. Notice what he asked for next. He goes on. Next, look at the next verse. Uh, furthermore, I said to the king, <laughs> the boldness of this guy. He's a servant. He's a cupbearer. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass until I come, through, until I come to Judah. He said, time out. Thanks for letting me go. Now, I want diplomatic immunity. I want to be able to go anywhere in this area with a letter from you that says, you've got to let me do what I want to do. Here's why. He had found out enough about the story of Jerusalem to know there are a lot of people that didn't want him to do what he was about ready to do. So he goes to a pagan king and says, I want you to sign off on this and let me do it. And when everybody asks me what I'm doing, I can just let go. See this? Give him a call. Send him an email. He'll tell you it's all okay. And when everybody saw that deal... That piece of paper, that, that document that said you can do whatever you want to do, nobody wanted to mess with the king, Artaxerxes. End of story, right? No. He takes it another step. And notice what he said. And give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timbers to make beams for the gates of the citadel which returns to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And by the way, I want your credit card. I want you to fund, this is crazy, I want you, a pagan king, to fund me building Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. He didn't say any of that, but that's what he's asking for. He's asking for a blank check, he's asking for a credit card, he's asking that when he gets there and he needs timbers, he walks over and goes over to the ASAP and he goes, hey ASAP, hey, um, I, need, uh, I need a couple of iJoyce and I need them delivered tomorrow. Oh, who do you think you are? Oh, here, let me show you the card. <laughs> It'll be there tomorrow. <clears throat> you see this kind of boldness? From a guy who's a servant. And notice what, how it ends. And that's where we're going to stop today. 
And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So this guy, who goes from a, a point of, I could die if I answer this question wrong, to, I want a leave of absence, diplomatic community, and a blank check. And a pagan, ungodly king goes, it's yours, buddy. Looking forward to seeing you when you get back. You want to talk about a God thing? That's a God thing. And here's the reality of it. If, as what I think happened, the Bible doesn't say this, but if what I think happened, he goes to Jerusalem, he builds the walls in 52 days, and then he comes back. The reality of it is, Nehemiah probably spent more time traveling to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem than he actually did building the walls. Because it's 800 miles, one way. And they didn't have planes or cars. This was a chariot at best. More than likely, a camel, donkey, walking. It's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. A couple of takeaways for us. And, and, and as we go out our week, and here's the first one. The first one is this. God's timetable ain't your timetable. We're in a world of instant stuff. This morning, my breakfast took one minute and 20 seconds. My coffee, because I got the large version from my Keurig, took maybe 45 seconds. drive through the other day at McDonald's. She looked at me in those kind, compassionate way and said, could you just pull up there? We'll bring it out. And in my patience to say, I'm so blessed to be in America where I can pull up and not even have to get out of my car. And I sat there and I dwelt on how wonderful it was to sit there as somebody brought my food out to me And if you know me, I got something to sell you when this service is over. <laughs> Believe me. You know? And we get frustrated because we have to pull up and wait in our culture. And that, that pervades itself into our Christianity. And we come up against a crisis or we come up against a situation and we think that, okay, you know what? I'm going to pray for this like a whole week and then God will answer. God doesn't work like that. Once in a while, maybe, but not as, a, not as a standard way of working. And we've got to understand that. I mean, from the time God looked at Abraham and said, you're going to have a son, it was 25 years. When God looks at Noah and says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to flood the earth, it was 120 years later. When God looks at Moses and says, hey, I'm going to deliver you out of the... I'm going to, you're going to use you to deliver the people. Well, what he didn't tell him was, you're going to spend 40 years in Egypt, you're going to spend 40 years in the desert, then you're going to deliver the people, and you're going to spend 40 years with them in the wilderness before you ever see the promised land. When, when, when even Paul, when you read the New Testament, you get the idea that Paul got saved and then he started his missionary journey. But the reality of it is, Paul gets saved, spends three years in Arabia, spends eight to 12 years... In, in, in Tarsus before he ever takes his first missionary journey. And we forget that, there's a, there's a, that God doesn't deal in time like we deal in time. And so when, when Nehemiah hears about this, he starts praying and fasting and does so for four months before he ever opens his mouth and says, Hey, king, I got a problem. 
And sometimes I think we forget that. And some of you, you prayed for something for a long, long time and you haven't seen it happen. Listen, don't stop praying. Some of you are here because people prayed for you for a very long time. Some of you are like me. You've prayed for other people for a very long time. Before you ever saw God. And God was at work the whole time. We you just didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize it. Because God's time frame is not our time frame. And we've got to remember that. And sometimes I think we forget that. And sometimes we forget that concept and that idea that, that God's timetable is much, much, much different than ours. And I think that's one of the things that you see in Nehemiah chapter 2. Because it takes four months before God starts looking and answering. Here's the second thing. We have this tendency to minimize the importance of planning. It's kind of like, you think the right Christian response is, well, we're just going to trust God. You know, you know, I know my marriage needs help. We're just going to trust God. In a moment, when a king looks at Nehemiah and says, what do you want? Nehemiah has spent four months, not just praying, but planning for this moment. Nehemiah is able to look at the king and go, okay, king, here's the deal. It's going to take me X number of days to get over there, get the wealth belt, get back here. Um, I know that I'm going to have some problems because I know the past history here, and in the past history, people have opposed what I'm getting ready to do, so I'm going to need diplomatic immunity. Oh, and by the way, when I get there, i got to have materials, and everybody over there is so poor, they don't have the money for it, so I want you to fund it. And in a moment, because he spent four months praying, planning, thinking, asking God to use him in a great way, the key is able to look at a king and go, boom, 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 boom. This isn't a guy who just stood back and went, we're just going to let go and trust God. This is a guy who trusted God, but he was specific enough to be able to go, okay, here's my plan. We get this idea that it's spiritual to, that it's spiritual to not plan. That's insane. That's insane. I get people who go, you know, uh, let me try to make it, you know, in your marriage, you know, it's like, you know, well, we're just going to trust God. To, we're just going to pray for our marriage. <sighs> Great. It's not enough. It's not enough. Let's, let's say, let me illustrate it for a minute, okay? Let's say that you have a problem that every time you go to the checkout in any store and you see, we'll go with, we'll go with the, um, uh, one of my favorites lately, a Hershey's chocolate bar, that you always buy a Hershey's chocolate bar. And you come to me and you go, Pastor, I got a problem. Every time I'm in the checkout line and there's a Hershey chocolate bar, I take it and I buy it and I eat it in the car on the way home. And Pastor, this is a big issue in my life. And I go, okay, you know, I, I get it. I get it. And I look at you and go, let's just pray about it. And I want you to pray about it. So you walk into the store praying, God, please don't let me see the Hershey chocolate bar. God, please don't let me hear it. And then you get ready to go in line, and, and, and you go, and you get in the line, and you go, God, please don't let me see it. And there's the Hershey chocolate bar. And you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying. No, God, please don't. How about coming up with a plan? 
Here's a simple plan. Don't go down the aisle with Hershey chocolate bars. Well, they all, every aisle in this store has them. They go to a different store. You see, you've got to have a plan. It, it's not just enough, and that's what I'm saying. Does he pray? Yes. Does he trust God? Yes. But he's got a plan, too. You know, oh, pastor, we're just praying for a marriage. We're praying for a marriage. We're praying for a marriage. Have you ever thought of going to a seminar to help your marriage? Ever thought about reading a book? Ever thought about going on YouTube? You ever thought about all of the resources that are out there to try to help you come up with a plan? You know, I watch people do this with finances. I watch people do this with marriage. I watch people do this with jobs. Kids, hear me. Hear me. I watch college kids go and get a college degree and never ask the most basic, fundamental question, which is, is this a career field that will pay me enough to pay back my college loans? It's like, oh, no, no, that's just what I want to do. Great. But there are only so many career fields that, you know, I have people that go, well, I'm going to go into this career field. One of my first questions to them is, what's the demand? What's the need? And what has happened is they pigeon themselves so narrow in their plan that it's a bad plan to start with. I'm like, well, I just prayed and, and, and God led me to this college because they gave me the biggest scholarship. Is there, you've got to come up with a plan for your career. I mean, when my kid, when I remember, we went through this with, with Josh in here so I can use him. Um, that's why. You think my kids come to church because of, no, no, no. They come so they can defend themselves. That's why they come. Um, but when Josh, Josh, i never forget, Josh said, he said, I want to go into the medical field. I want, I, I want to go into the medical field. I just want to do something in the medical field. So I said, okay, all right, let's go. So what we did, we said, we want you to take a course in high school dealing with medical. And he, dealt, he took medical terminology. It was awesome. He whipped through that thing, no problem at all. The next year he took EMT. And he was doing really well. Until he saw blood. And then he almost passed out. And I said, son, <clears throat> I'm going to make a suggestion here based on lots of years of experience. This probably isn't the field God has for you. And he said, I really want to do medical. I said, then let's look at medical IT. So we went and met with medical IT people, and they said, they told us what was involved. And I looked at him and I said, Gee, I said, you want to make a lot of money? Go into that field. I said, you want to have a life? Then you need to find another field. Because that's 24-7. You can only go so far away because you've got to be on call and blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, you think about it for a minute. <laughs> As the guy explained it to me, he said, from the day I hire a computer person, he said, it's two to three years before they're of any value to me. So we have over 300 software programs that we have to be able to troubleshoot at any time. And he said, so there's a lot of, t and I'm looking at him going, you really want to be learning like that for the rest of your life? Trust me, when you get to be my age, you know what? Yeah, you don't want to. I look at my kids and go, hey, fix my cell phone. I don't even want to learn it anymore. I don't even want to learn it anymore. People come to me with computer stuff. I'm like, talk to my kids. I stopped learning that a long time ago because I got no, but I mean, it's a world where you have to stop and ask. This guy planned. This guy had a thing. And when the king said, look, what do you got? He goes, he had an answer for him. And whatever it is you're struggling with, 
You know, you're struggling with your language. You're struggling with your marriage. You're struggling with your kids. You're struggling with your employer. You're struggling. Pray. Yes, pray. I'm not going to minimize it. But come up with a plan, too. You know, you guys look at, at what's going on out here, and it kind of looks like in some ways, you know, we don't know what we're doing, and there are, there's some thing to that. But if you pull me aside, and some of you have done this, you know this. I have three plans for that. I have a low-budget plan, which we're on. I have a medium-budget plan, and I have a high-budget plan. There's a plan out there, believe it or not. And we've actually had discussions about what's our plan. But we also pray, and we waited for God's timing, and we waited for God to lead all the way along the way every step, and we've watched God do that. You know, can you imagine us coming in and going, you know, we're just going to pray for God to miraculously drop a building out there. Believe me, if it worked like that, I would have done it. Hey, I would have done it. But you know what? God's got, again, there's a plan to it. And I want to encourage you. Because some of you are struggling right now. You go, Pastor, you don't understand. I prayed for this and prayed for this. Okay, so what's your plan? What's your plan? Because there's got to be both sides to it. And then here's the third thing. And this is the thing that, that for you tomorrow, particularly those of you in the work that are still working and not retired and all that kind of stuff. You want a great example of a godly person in a pagan world? It's Nehemiah. Because here's what's amazing to me. The king doesn't want him to leave. And one of the first questions the king has is, how fast are you coming back here? Now, this is a Jewish boy in a pagan world. This is a Jewish boy who has done his job in such a way that the king not only says, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to help you so that your task is even easier. This is a guy who has gained the respect of his boss, a pagan boss. He's in a world in which Nehemiah is surrounded by incredibly ungodly things. When you study this culture and you'll find out that, you know, I understand that immorality in America is rampant. I understand America is, is we've got a law, we've, immorality is just, you know, on TV, everything else, we're, we're surrounded by it. But you need to understand this. Historically, in the days of Nehemiah, in the days of Paul, they were doing stuff we haven't even thought of yet. Because the world in which they lived, when we talk about a pagan world, we're talking about an incredibly pagan world. And in Nehemiah's world, he would have been exposed to all of that. And yet, he lived in such a way that a pagan king said, you know what, I think so much of you, I want to help you out here. So much so that I'm going to give you my credit card. So much so that I'm going to write a letter that says you can do whatever you want to do in my name. Now let me ask you something. How well do you do your job in a pagan world? Because some of you are in a world in which you are exposed to, you know, we have people in law enforcement, we have people in the medical field. You are exposed to some of the worst of the worst stuff. And that is an opportunity for all of us to be able to do our job in such a way that people see Christ in us. You see, I'm a firm believer that if you call yourself a Christian, you ought to do your job better than everybody else. And if you're supposed to punch in at five, at 8 o'clock in the morning, 
Five minutes till eight, you're ready to punch in. The boss says, I need somebody to stay after a little bit and help us out. You're the guy. You're the person. You're the person that, if the boss has to sit there and go, who do we trust here to take the cash to the bank? You're the first name they come up with. Who do we know that can be the designated driver for the party, the office party? You're the person they think of. See, I'm of the opinion that you should do your job in such a way that people see Christ in the way you do your job. Because ultimately, I believe, as Colossians teaches, that we don't work for the world, we work for God. Um, I saw that this week. Um, and, and I don't want to embarrass him, but Rod, I gave Roger and Lynn this job that I didn't want to do. Um, and what it was was, we, we were running cable from that building to this building, and I gave these guys the job, and I said, okay, guys, here's what we need to do. We need to put gutter up in the, in the thing, and I need you to hang gutter up so we can run the cables in and just lay them in the gutter. So I had a bunch of old gutter at my house from my scrap pile that my wife wants me to get rid of. I did. Um, some of it. It's still there. The rest of it's still there. But anyway, so I, have the, I, I had this gutter, and so they cleaned it all out, and they started putting it up, and so they got to the last section. And they said, how do you want it done? And I said, well, I said, it's no big deal. I said, you go and you put a piece here and you put a gap and just throw another piece up there and I'll just make the turn. And they said, we can miter it. Now, for those of you that may not mean anything, here's what it meant. It meant a lot of work. And nobody's ever going to see it. It's up in the ceiling. Nobody's going to pay attention to it. And I said, it doesn't need to be mitered. You don't need to go to all that work. You know, nobody's ever going to see it. Let's just, just go ahead and you can put it up this way. And they said, we can miter it. And I said, miter it. We left the ceiling tile open because we've got more work to do this week. But this morning, I came in to open up the sound room, and I look up, and I see this beautifully mitered corner. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's something even God would be proud of because it's done right. I, on the other hand, was going to cut the corners and go, you know, just slap this up there. Nobody's ever going to see it, blah, 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 blah. But it, it, it was a reminder to me that you know what, even if it's putting up a gutter that nobody's ever going to see for a bunch of cable that needs to just lay up there, you take pride in it, and you do it in such a way that if you were doing it for Christ, he would be pleased with the way you did what you did. That's what we're talking about. And so, first of all, pat them on the back. Go look at the mitered corner. It's awesome. It's right above the mailboxes out there. You can look at how awesome it looks. But you know what? That's the way all of us should do our jobs all day long, every day. And then, as we have opportunity, we back up with our words what we have demonstrated in our life. I watch too many Christians go into the workplace with a lot of words. And they do more damage than they do good because they're talking about how great it is to be a Christian. And then, next thing you know, they're cussing like a sailor. And you talk about how wonderful it is to, to, to be a Christian and go to church and everything else, and then they treat people like trash and dirt all week long in the way that they demean them and talk down to them and all of that kind of stuff. You have a life. I, the old adage, your actions speak louder than your words. Your words need to speak, don't get me wrong, but your actions need to back up what you're saying with your words. And here's the thing you see about Nehemiah. They did. When he looked at the king and he asked some pretty bold things, 
the king looked at him and said, you know what, you're the kind of guy I want to invest in. I'm in your corner. Here's a blank check. Here's the paperwork. You go do whatever you need to do. And you do it with my blessing and my approval and my money. And God uses him in a great way. Part of it's because he had a testimony before a pagan king that the king said, I respect you, I honor you, I trust you, I want you to go do this. That's the way we need to live. So I end it with this. Nehemiah demonstrates how a godly person could be effective in a pagan world. He shows us how to do a job efficiently by depending on God and allowing God time to work. He demonstrates the value of planning and patience and waiting for God's timing and not his own. They're valuable lessons for each of us this week. Let's go out and do the same thing. Let's pray. Help us, Lord. Lord, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that people are watching. And Lord, we don't want them to see us. We want them to see Christ in us. So help us. Lord, may we be the kind of people that turn to you first in prayer, that depend on you in prayer. But Lord, we plan and we, we, we discern and we figure out ways, Lord, for you to use us. And Lord, then we're willing to go and be used. So Lord, as some of these folks head into some pretty tough situations this week, some pretty pagan environments, use them. And Lord, when it is all said and done, may people come to know you because of the way we have lived our lives. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and uh, we're going to sing Nothing But the Blood, 195. Let's sing the first verse. Nothing.